As I've mentioned before, this podcast is made possible by contributions from listeners. Together, you've helped create more than 400 podcasts over the last six years. I'd like to take a moment to thank each and every one of you for that. This show simply wouldn't be possible without you. I've recently been looking at my options because of some financial problems. As a result, I've talked to my friends, family, peers within our community, and also sought out other perspectives about what to do. I heard the same thing over and over again. If your audience continues to find the show valuable, then by the very principles of permaculture, there's no reason you shouldn't be able to earn a living wage. The problem right now is that I'm not. You know my record and thoughts on permaculture. I'm not a shovel-in-the-dirt kind of guy. I'm a scholar and an academic, a storyteller and a broadcaster. My job is to bring the Permaculture Podcast to you. My salary and the budget for the show depends on you. Will you support this work? I'm not looking to generate excess capital, but I can't work on an empty stomach either. If a mere one out of seven of my listeners dedicated a dollar a month or an annual contribution of $20 to the show, I would be able to make a living wage. So I'm going to pause here for a moment and encourage you to visit thepermaculturepodcast.com slash support and invest in this renewable resource that I'm creating for our community. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann, and you're listening to episode 1713, Protected Culture, Growing in Greenhouses and Hoop Houses. My guest today is Andrew Mefford, the author of the Greenhouse and Hoop House Growers Handbook. During the conversation today, Andrew draws on his years of experience as a farmer and a researcher at Johnny Selected Seeds to help us understand what it means to grow inside of a greenhouse or a hoop house and how this kind of protected production can be used in our backyard on a very small scale in something like a cold frame scaled all the way up to industrial production on a large multi-acre farm. And intermixed with this, Andrew shares his experiences as the editor of Growing for Market, a magazine dedicated to growers who are selling directly to their consumers, be that restaurants or farmer's market clients. I like this conversation with Andrew because, as permaculture practitioners, we're modifying our landscape to meet human needs. So if you're just getting started, a greenhouse or a hoop house can allow you to grow year-round, regardless of the environment that you find yourself in. And Andrew shares with us ideas of how we can use these kinds of structures, whether we're in a very hot climate or a very cold one. But let's go ahead and get into this conversation so you can learn more about protected culture directly from Andrew, and I'll join you again afterwards. Then, Andrew, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we can get into the Greenhouse and Hoop House Growers Handbook. I'm the editor of Growing for Market magazine, which is a uh, magazine that comes out 10 times a year that's, that's mostly for direct market growers. And by that, I mean farmer's market, CSA, farm stand, uh, local wholesaling, that kind of thing. And we just focus on uh, production tips, marketing, and the business of farming. So there's a lot there, particularly for market growers. And we also have a lot of readers who are either very serious home gardeners or homesteaders or people who are thinking about becoming uh, market gardeners. Because if, if you think about that, if you're a very serious grower, even if you're not commercial, you want all the tips and tricks that small-scale commercial growers are using. So that's something that I've been doing since uh, the very beginning of 2016. I just took it over from Lynn Bozinski, who started the publication 26 years ago now, and she had been doing it for the first 25 and was just ready to pass it on. And so I, I had been writing for the magazine a little bit, and she, she asked me if I would like to take it over from her because she thought it was important that whomever is editing it as a small publication is also writing for it from time to time. And I, I confess I have not been doing a whole lot of writing for the publication because I've been just so busy getting up to speed on, on running the magazine and also on, on finishing my book that just came out. So I was taking over the magazine and I was finishing up my book at the same time, which was crazy. So I'm just happy now that I the book is out and get to talk with with people like yourself and your audience about it and uh, not have to work on it anymore. And I could just, just focus on the magazine now. But um, my background is that I, I grew up in the mid Atlantic. I grew up in, in Virginia 
but my uh, part of my family's from Pennsylvania, and I actually did go to school for journalism, so my, my parents are proud that I'm using my degree. <laughs> I went to school in, in Virginia, and then I went to school at uh, Concordia University in Montreal, Canada, for journalism. And But uh, along the way, I got more than sidetracked and got extremely interested in, in farming and did what we call the apprentice circuit. I, I worked on farms all around the country to learn the business of farming uh, because what I wanted to do was to start a farm on the the uh, family land there in, in Pennsylvania. And so I, first I worked on a farm in, in Pennsylvania as an apprentice and I just got hooked. I was I just liked farming and so then I, I worked on a farm out in California and up in Washington State and came back east and worked at the research farm for uh, Virginia Tech down in Blacksburg, Virginia. And then, then we did start uh, a farm in Pennsylvania and when we lost the use of that land, continued apprenticing and did apprenticeships in upstate New York and then in Maine, which is what brought us to Maine. So we reestablished our farm in Maine, which was very serendipitous because it was just a half hour away from the Johnny Selected Research Farm because I was planning on farming full time. But um, that first winter that we were in Maine, 2008-2009, uh, we thought, well, we needed winter jobs and so worked as a uh, commercial sales rep for Johnny Selected Seeds. You know, I was the person that would be there in Maine when you call up to make your seed order. Hello, thank you for calling Johnny's. This is Andrew. How may I help you? It was over that winter that the, the technician, the tomato technician at, at Johnny's left. And so, and I thought, well, wow, that sounds like an interesting job. And so I went right into um, working in the research department at Johnny's where I, I got more and more specialized over time and became the uh, greenhouse specialist for Johnny's. And so that's where I can say the book came from both of those experiences. From working at Johnny's, I had access to a lot of university and commercial growers and seed companies who had tons of information about greenhouse growing. Plus, I was farming at the time. Plus, I was drawing on the my background apprenticing on farms across the country. And what I noticed was that the researchers and larger commercial growers, more Dutch-style growers, they just had these these techniques for greenhouse growing that were really specialized and were just unlike anything that I had seen before. Because the way that we set up our farm, we worked for so many farms as apprentices before we started farming. We kind of picked and chose the best things that we liked about each farm to make our farm. You know, we didn't we didn't model our farm off of any one particular model. We our farm was kind of a mashup of all the best things that we liked from all the people that we had worked for. But Working at Johnny's, I saw this whole new way of growing, uh, which is, wasn't new to Holland because a lot of it was developed by the Dutch, but it was these management practices for greenhouses and hoop houses that were really different from the field. And what I realized is that most of the farms that I had worked for were growing tomatoes and other vining crops and leafy crops. They were growing them pretty much the way that they grew them out in the field, just under cover in a greenhouse or hoop house, that there's this whole other set of practices that I was unfamiliar with, and, and more importantly, most of the small growers that I got to visit seemed unfamiliar with that were really how to specifically manage plants in a, in a protected environment. And so the first thing that came to my mind was, do these techniques transfer over to a lower tech, more organic, natural kind of environment? Because the way that I mostly saw them used was in larger, you know, fancier greenhouses. And so I essentially used my own farm and, and the Johnny's uh, trials to a lesser extent to try out these these greenhouse growing techniques. And, and what I found was that they're scalable. For the most part, they transfer really well from the biggest greenhouse you've ever seen down to the smallest one you've ever seen. Because what they're really doing is they're taking a good understanding of the physiology of plants and how to manipulate that through the environment, since that's the main way to change what your plants are doing is to change the temperature, change the humidity, change the watering, change the fertilizer. And so they take a very specialized understanding of the plants to be able to uh, manipulate them to, to get more out of the same protected space. In fact, one of the earlier titles that we kicked around and that didn't end up going with for the book is getting the most out of your greenhouse or hoop house because cause I, I visited so many growers. In fact, that was one of the nice things about working for Johnny's is I got to go on a lot of farm tours because I, I love farm tours. I love just going to people's places and seeing what people are doing. And so I just visited so many people 
that I thought I would be there and be thinking, man, you could be getting so much more out of this, this hoop house or greenhouse. You know, you've already built the thing. You've already put the money and sweat equity into it. And uh, you could be getting so much more of a return if you planted more densely or pruned like this or, you know, trellis like this. And so that's really why why I wrote the book. And that's basically my journey there from working on other people's farms to starting my own and then, and then writing the book. It's quite a lot of experience that got you from the beginning to where you are now in producing this book. One of the things that fascinates me is that the idea of French intensive or market gardening is one of the kind of strategies that a lot of permaculture practitioners engage in, in order to be able to grow a lot of food in a small space. And as permaculture kind of moves further and further into temperate and colder climates, I wouldn't say that greenhouses are more popular because of the expense of a traditional greenhouse, but hoop houses are very affordable relative to other forms of protection. And I know for a while there were some USDA grants and other grants available that could pay for almost the entire cost of erecting a hoop house. And that's where like my intersection with this book comes in is because you're providing not only profitable ways to do market gardening, but also doing it under a form of protection that is relatively affordable for anyone who wants to become a commercial grower and still be able to practice organic and permaculture methods all in one. That's one of the things that I like about protected growing. And I'm just going to pause here and say what I mean by protected growing. This term that I have in the subtitle of the book, organic vegetable production using protected culture, you know, people may be saying, what is protected culture? And it's a term I really like. It's used in Europe a lot. And part of my strategy by putting it in the subtitle was I want to coin it in here in North America a little more. Because when I say greenhouse, I think sometimes people who have unheated structures think I'm not talking about them. When I say hoop house, heated growers think I'm not talking about their greenhouses. And so this term protected culture is one that I, I really like because it's an um, umbrella term that refers to greenhouses and hoop houses. You know, when I say protected culture, I'm talking to everybody with any kind of structure, you know, whether it's greenhouse or hoop house. And I'll, I'll try to be specific. You know, if I'm talking about a practice that really relies on heat, I'll try to say greenhouse. And if I'm talking about something that really only applies to unheated structures, I'll try and say hoop house. But I really like this term protected culture because it's a big umbrella and there are a lot of things that are successful, whether you have heat or not. So I think you're right. There is an increasing interest in protected culture. Definitely saw it when I was at Johnny's, not in the least because of those NRCS grants that were, and I believe are still helping people build greenhouses. In fact, if you are thinking about building a hoop house, especially for the first time, I think that first-time builders get preferential treatment, but they may also help fund a, an additional tunnel on a farm um, that already has one. I would really encourage everyone to look into those USDA grants, and they usually go state by state where there's a certain number of grants that they're probably going to do on a yearly basis, and you would have to contact your state NRCS. But that's a great way to get into protected culture is to get one of the USDA grants that are helping to fund hoop houses because I feel like hoop houses really are valuable almost regardless of the climate. In fact, you know, I, I worked on farms in all different kinds of climates. You know, one comes to mind that I worked on in California, kind of Mediterranean-type climate, right? So I think when you say hoop house or greenhouse, people do kind of think they're a cold-weather thing to lengthen the season. Well, the farm that I worked in in the Mediterranean climate in California, they had hoop houses too. It's just that they were planting tomatoes in unheated hoop houses in March, Whereas here we are in March and I'm looking out and I've got a foot of snow still on the ground here in Maine. So, you know, hoop houses and greenhouses and season extension are tools that are really useful anywhere. It, it just helps you make more of whatever season that you have. That's really why I'm such a big fan. I'm definitely a promoter of protected culture in general because really, you know, as the editor of a, of a magazine for small farmers, and I can say as one of the big changes that I would like to see in the world is I'd like to see more of, more of the food that's eaten come from closer to where it's consumed. So to me, when a small farm puts up a hoop house or a greenhouse, they're basically stretching out the season on local food season because almost, almost anywhere is 
climate limited really anywhere in the world. I mean, certainly in North America, there might be a couple coastal places where you could say grow tomatoes almost year round, but almost anywhere you are, you're limited by either heat or cold. And if, if you can build a hoop house or a greenhouse, it just gives you that much more control over the climate. And it allows you to stretch out local food season because I feel like the demand is clearly there for local food. You know, we've seen the, the number of farmers markets grow something like quintupled. You know, we have, we have five times as many farmers markets in this country as we did 20 years ago. In fact, those numbers are leveling off. I think we may be nearing a point of, of saturation, you know, we, where we've, we're approaching peak farmers market unless demand grows a lot more. And so I think now what a lot of people are trying to do is the demand is there. And if they can supply local food for a greater part of the season, they can sell more. You know, if, if they can sell local tomatoes for five months instead of three months, they've almost doubled their tomato season right now, which, to, to, you know, tomatoes are the, the most profitable crop on a lot of small farms. And even if you're not farming commercially, almost anybody's going to want some kind of protected structure, right, for starting seedlings or overwintering mother plants or even curing onions and winter squash and things like that in the summer and fall. So I feel like protected culture is just is just a multi-use tool that has so many uses that on small farms and homesteads, greenhouses and hoop houses can be used for something or another pretty much all year round. Even, even if you're not growing a crop actively year round, there's a use for a greenhouse or hoop house all year round. And so on. with this book, I'm really just trying to help people figure out what the best use for um, protected spaces. And, and I want to make sure whether they already have one or especially if um, people are building a greenhouse or hoop house for the first time, that they can hit the ground running, you know. Because what I would see is, is growers have a greenhouse or hoop house for a first time and kind of be at a loss. And sometimes at Johnny's, we get this question. People would either get an NRCS grant and build a, a hoop house or just, just go out and build one themselves. And they would sometimes call up and be like, all right, I just build a hoop house. What do I put in it? And in fact, the book specifically deals with eight crops, you know, and I, I divide them into the vining fruiting crops and the leafy crops. And so, and I'm really dealing with on the vining fruiting side, tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, and eggplant. And on the leafy side, lettuce, mixed greens, microgreens, and in herbs, mostly being basil. And so in just the fact that I dealt with those crops is really a suggestion to people, and particularly if they are commercial, but even if they're not, you're going to get the highest return you know, whether it's dollar value for the, the effort that you put into something, or if you're feeding your family or trying to preserve food, you're going to generate the most return from those, those eight crops. And I do spend a little bit of time about how to evaluate other crops, but I've seen people like, let's, let's say you weren't even farming commercially and you were trying to feed your family most effectively. And I, I've seen people grow potatoes in a hoop house and they grow great. In fact, I have a little anecdote in the book where at the farmer's market that we used to do, there was a grower who said to me, I tried potatoes in my hoop house this year. They grew great. Never grow potatoes in your hoop house. And what he meant was that they were great. He had the earliest potatoes on the block. But the time that they tied up that hoop house for just one single harvest was not worthwhile, especially when you consider that he had field growing space where he could just grow potatoes during the normal growing season and then store them and have freed up his protected space for some other crop. So regardless of what people's applications are here, you know, growing these eight crops, taking the tips that I have in the book, I think are really, that's the way to get the most out of your greenhouse or hoop house. And, and before we move on, I, I should say, this is a pretty technical book. I've got lots of suggestions, you know, temperatures to grow things at, humidity, trellising, pruning, and all these kinds of things. But it, this isn't a take-it-or-leave-it-all kind of system, you know. It's, it's not like, these are the 10 steps to getting what you want. You have to do all of them, you know. I view this book like an a la carte menu, really, is that people should read it and take what appeals to them. And then, uh, you know, let's say if they don't like the way I have, I'm pruning the crops, you know, they can disregard that. They can just keep pruning the way they have been, or they can try it out. This isn't a system like you have to do every single thing. I look at this book as, as best practices. You know, these are what I've seen time and again, and from talking to the best growers that I know, saying like, you know, this is what we do to get our best production. But what keeps farming interesting for me is that people do things differently. So I would encourage people to read the book, but then come up with their own management style, because style really does come into it. 
you know, we all have different growing styles and people can really customize the suggestions in the book based on the way they like to grow. And I think they can take some stuff, leave some stuff, and still see their production much improved, especially if they are using field-growing techniques in their, their greenhouse or hoop house. And I was wondering, before we move along, are these techniques adaptable to, say, someone who's just a backyard gardener who would want to use a large cold frame? Yes. I guess I should qualify that. You know, really, I'm not even going to qualify that. I'm just going to say yes, because what I learned, originally, I didn't set out thinking, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a book. I found myself in this situation where I was working at Johnny's. I was getting all this information that was different from what I had learned, you know, multiple years of apprenticing on, on working farms, right? So on the one hand, I was looking at these, these big farms and this, this information that I was getting, and then I was looking at the way that I was growing and the way that all the growers that I had worked for were growing. And I was seeing two really different things. And that's really the question that I wanted to know, does this scale? And so what the information in my book comes down to is knowing how to make the plants that you're growing happy and realizing that in protected culture, you have more control over the conditions so you can manipulate them. You have extra control over whether your plants are happy or not. And the science does not matter. It's, it's entirely scalable. So, yeah, I'm going to say if you are growing in a cold frame, you can use my temperature and humidity recommendations just as much as somebody in a 100-square-foot hoop house or a 100-acre greenhouse. You know, The laws of nature apply equally to plants regardless of the size. And so, you know, you're not going to grow a trellis tomato plant in a cold frame. But, but what you can do in a cold frame without any heat or anything is you can take my temperature guidelines are because I, I have, for all eight of the crops that are discussed, I have temperature recommendations. And so if you have heat, what those temperature recommendations turn into are heating recommendations. If you don't have heat, what they turn into are planting recommendations. So they can help you to schedule you can look at, let's say, lettuce, for example. You, you can find the minimum temperature the lettuce wants to be at and then try to schedule your plantings around the times when it's colder than that. And, of course, lettuce and greens can actually get really cold. And, you know, I, I talk about, I actually have multiple different growing temperatures in there for lettuce and greens because unlike the vining fruiting crops, you know, they need so much heat, you really can only only grow them in the the warmer climates or the, the warmer times of the year. Whereas the lettuce and greens, you can either grow them at a, at a fast speed, even in the wintertime if you have heat, or you can grow them at the slower speed, slower temperatures where they're just going to grow very slowly at cooler times of the year. And so that applies to a cold frame as much as is any greenhouse or hoop house that's out there. So the best practices for greenhouse and hoop house growing are so malleable across sizes. You know, it, it's entirely scalable smaller growers should be using these techniques to get more out of their smaller spaces. The same techniques, occasionally modified a little bit, just scaled to their size, and they can get a lot more out of a greenhouse or hoop house of any size. And then you mentioned that, you know, most of our growing is either limited by cold, but it can also be limited by heat. Can you use a greenhouse or a hoop house in order to control temperature through things like shades or shade cloth thrown over the structure to allow you to grow different things when it is hot, like when your lettuce might be ready to bolt or wilt that you can cover it and get more of a season out of it in that way as well? Yeah, absolutely. Some of these techniques can be really low-tech solutions. For example, yeah, you could put shade cloth over the whole entire greenhouse, or you can even put shade cloth over the, uh, over the trusses inside of a structure. And one of the interesting things about that is that that can give you a partially shaded environment. For example, um, if you're going to put shade cloth over a whole structure, it's easiest to just get a big, huge piece of shade cloth that's the same size as, as the skin, as the plastic of the, the hoop house, and just pull it over the whole thing, right? Whereas you can do this partial shading thing where you can buy strips of shade cloth and pull it down over, let's say, over each row and leave the pathways open. And so... One advantage of that is that you only get a partial shading, so you, you can get more sunlight in there, and also that, that allows the hot air to filter up through the breaks in, in the shade cloth. And so I've seen people do that, and that actually has some advantages. I've even seen that on mixed plantings so of, say, tomatoes and basil in the, in the same house. And, and I'm thinking here in, some, in the south and southeast, really sunny areas, what that helps to do is in the hottest times of year when you're really borderline, you're almost too hot, 
truck crops in the, in the hoop house, that will cool things down and, and it will also help the plants deal with that almost excessive heat when they're not also getting an excessive amount of light. And one of the neat things, whether you're growing basil all by itself or intercropped with tomatoes, is that the basil leaves will compensate for the lowered light by getting larger. So you'll actually get bigger basil leaves, and you'll get bigger tomato leaves too. All crops will compensate in this way, but it's particularly handy in leafy crops because the, their leaves will get bigger, and so it may result in a quicker time to harvest, or just you'll have these big, bodacious basil bunches because the leaves are getting bigger to try to compensate for the, the lower light. So yeah, there's some, there's some really low-tech solutions like you know, using shade cloth or strips of shade cloth. You know, these kinds of things are just as useful in, in the hottest areas as, as in the coldest areas, you know. So I'm, I'm here in central Maine now. We have a very short season or either somewhere in zone four, depending on how, depending on how it's, it's classified. So I consider hoop houses crucial to growing large-fruited tomatoes. When we first moved here, after having grown in central Pennsylvania, we were used to just planting tomatoes and we'd have a nice long tomato season and they did great so we came up here adjusted our planting dates and put our tomatoes out in the field and the first two seasons that we were up here we didn't have a hoop house and one year we got late light the other year the tomatoes were just covered with splits and spots because we're so far north and it's just so cold it's really not it's just not ideal tomato growing weather in fact, we've moved all of our large-fruited tomato production inside because we just don't have enough heat. I consider it uneconomic to grow large-fruited tomatoes out in the field where we are. And a lot of the growers in our area are doing the same thing. But they've just stopped producing large-fruited tomatoes in the field because it's, it's so much work to take care of the plants and then you harvest them for a few weeks or something before it gets cold. It's just not a winning proposition. We still grow cherry and grape tomatoes out in the field. But on the flip side, I know a lot of places in the south they actually get too hot in the middle of the season. In fact, from a lot of parts of the south and southeast, they're almost they're they're doing counter seasonal production to what we do here in the north, where you know we make the most of our short summer to grow as many of the vining fruiting crops as possible. Well, if you're in the deep south, it may actually be almost too hot to grow tomatoes out in the field, let alone in a hoop house over the summer. So. I know growers in the South who just leave their greenhouses empty for a month or two in the hottest months of the summer. In fact, that's a great thing to do as a clean-out period if any pests or diseases that be, may be hanging around from winter or spring production. If you leave your greenhouse or hoop house even wide open in the hottest part of the year if you're in the South, there's not going to be anything in there for those pests and diseases to eat, and it's going to be hot as blazes. And so that's a great way to clean out the pests and diseases from your structure in the south. And so I, I know a lot of growers in the south who take the summer off, and they grow through the fall, winter, and, and into the spring uh, in a greenhouse and a hoop house because even though it would be too cold to grow in the field through the winter, a lot of places, depending how far south you are, a lot of places can grow either unheated through the south with just the passive solar gain from a hoop house making it possible to nurse a crop through the winter, or there's pretty minimal heat you can get through the winter and, and really still have a very long season of production on tomatoes and cucumbers and stuff like that with just the addition of a little heat. Or, you know, an, another model that I've seen a lot of growers in the south is using a two-crop-a-year model where they'll start plants in the hottest part of the year for them. So they'll, they'll start seedlings when it's really too hot for them to grow in protected culture. And then as soon as, as, soon as the temperatures start coming down and it's, it's just cool enough to put plants back in a hoop house, they'll plant a fall crop. And so they'll take that crop from as soon as they can get it in in the late summer, early fall, until they get killed off by frost or just don't want to deal with it anymore in the wintertime, and then start a second round of plants in the wintertime, and then as, as soon as the light comes back a little bit and they either have enough heat or want to start heating again, they'll have a spring crop. And so that's what I love about protected culture is that you can really use it in a lot of different ways to suit whatever growing situation you find yourself in and, and improve it and make the most of that situation, whether, whether you're trying to lengthen a really cold season like people are doing in my part of the country or whether you're trying to get two crops or get one long crop over the cooler parts of the year in in the south or southeast so that's just what i love about the technologies it's so useful because once you understand what the plants want you can use the greater control that you have in protected culture to make your plants happy because that's really what it all comes down to protected growing uh, whether you have a greenhouse or hoop house it all comes down to control you have more control over the plant environment and some people 
use the term controlled environment growing as a synonym, particularly for greenhouse growing where you really have the added control of heat as well. But that's really what you're paying for. If you're building a hoop house or a greenhouse, you're paying for more control over the plant's environment, which to me is, is cheap insurance, you know, especially with weather's just getting wackier. In, in a lot of parts of the country, I've talked to growers, the weather's just more unpredictable than it, it used to be. And so I see protected cultures as cheap insurance is it, that um, you might not know whether it's going to be raining, hailing, or drought outside of your structure, but if, if you've got uh, irrigation in there, which everybody should, you know it's not going to be raining inside of your greenhouse or hoop house, and, and it could be dry as a bone outside, and you can water it in there. So, you know, that's, that's what it comes down for to growers, is having more control over their growing environment. And with that, there are eight crops that you recommend for growing in these kinds of systems. Why did you choose those crops in particular? You know, I just chose those organically, I would say, because over and over again, the greenhouses that I went to that were profitable and doing well were growing those eight crops. It was one of those things, after seeing it a million times, I was just like, okay, these are the eight crops that are just pretty bomb-proof and most likely to give you a return on your investment, whether you're looking to make money by selling at a farmer's market or simply looking to grow as much food as possible for your family. Tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, eggplant, lettuce, greens, microgreens, and herbs, in particular basil. They're just the things that tend to return, and um, part of it is that they're all crops that people like to enjoy fresh, right? You can't really store tomatoes, and so for one thing, all those crops, there needs to be a steady supply being produced fresh, and so that's part of it. The other part of it is that they get a high enough price per pound that if you go to the extra expense of building a greenhouse or hoop house, that they will pay you back. And also just that they're high yielding enough to pay for themselves. In fact, most of the crops either fit a very short cycle growing model or a long cycle growing model. For example, lettuce, whether it's head lettuce or, or salad mix, that those are the short crop models because you're either direct seeding or making seedlings somewhere else. And you're flipping that space over could be a month, you know. If, if you're planting lettuce seedlings, you might transplant them into your greenhouse or hoop house and be cutting them out a, a month later and be ready for another round of transplants. So that's the short crop model where you can get many, many crops, especially if you, if you live in a warm area or eating a greenhouse. I mean, you could get 10, 11, 12, maybe even of lettuce or greens out of a out of a protected structure over the course of a year. Whereas all the vining fruiting crops, they really fit the long crop model, right? If you transplant a beefsteak tomato into your greenhouse or hoop house, you may have to wait two months before you pick one, but you, you could pick those tomatoes almost as long as you want to heat it. And it's not unusual for heated greenhouse growers to go up to ten or a 10 or 11 month season. And so even if they spend the first 60 days not harvesting anything, the harvesting for the next eight months or so up to the next eight months or so um, makes up for so much time getting established. And so that's why, you know, that's just a trial and error. That's just people have tried growing all different kinds of things in the greenhouse. And if, if you just look at the crops that are produced most widely, it's those eight crops. And so I talk about how to evaluate other crops, like radishes, for example. Radishes could actually be a really good way to fit into that short crop model, right? Because radishes are so fast growing. If you had a really good um, market for radishes or if you just value diversity, I know a lot of people just want to have a diverse range of things either to sell out their farm stand or just or because they're eating it themselves they want a wide variety of things to eat even though radishes aren't part of my book you know i say radishes are are a crop that could fit into that that short crop production model because they can be planted harvested and replanted so quickly that um, you can really get many crops over the course of a year and and that's why I, i do kind of discourage things like potatoes or carrots for example i mean I've definitely seen carrots growing in hoop houses. I've tried it in my own hoop house. But the fact that carrots just, they take so long. You know, they, they really are not a fast crop. They, they tie up your protected space for, for quite a long time, and then you harvest them once and they're gone. So that's why I'm trying to just say the underlying factors, why those eight crops are the ones that most greenhouses you go to, they're, they're growing one of those eight crops. But I did also want to, I didn't want to help people understand why so that if they're considering something else like radishes or carrots, they can decide maybe radishes would be a better choice for my hoop house or greenhouse than uh, carrots, for example. 
From a permaculture perspective, I like what you've laid out because it gives practitioners a place to start with where we can then know that we'll have some success with these plants and then we can build on that with companion planting and different guilds and things and know that we're still going to get a yield and a harvest that can help cover the costs of running our farm and practicing protected culture while still integrating permaculture strategies and techniques. Yeah, absolutely. I know I've I've seen a lot of people do a lot of interesting things with greenhouses and hoop houses as far as having having other crops. Like you said, you know, maybe tomatoes are tomatoes are really paying the bills, but maybe they have mother plants for some herbs that they're overwintering or they even have some perennials or things that they're able to keep going. Like rosemary comes to mind. Some friends of mine did it did a Sari grant where they built an unheated hoop house in upstate New York because what they were trying to do was to overwinter overwinter rosemary and there's one particular cultivar of rosemary called arp arp which is so far as the, the most cold resistant cultivar of rosemary out there and what they found was that if they planted rosemary arp in an unheated hoop house in upstate new york so really really cold uh, you know almost as cold as it gets anywhere in the continental u.s they were actually able to overwinter rosemary and they tried a few different scenarios they tried covering it with row cover in different treatments, and they found that just putting rosemary in an unheated hoop house with no row cover or anything was the best way to overwinter it. Because what they found was if, if they put row cover over it, it had more heat, so it would start growing again during warmer spells, which would lead to it starting to go vegetative in the middle of winter in, when it was warm, and then it would cold snap and it would kill it. So they actually found the simplest treatment was the most effective, just planting some rosemary plants in an unheated hoop house was a way that they could overwinter rosemary in an area that otherwise it, w- it would never survive in. And so I think that that's it. You know, greenhouses and hoop houses are the kind of things, there are tons of uses for them. And if, if you build one, you can just find a lot of other things that you can do with it besides just growing the, the tender crops. And my thoughts go back to something my father used to always say at the very beginning or end of tomato season. He'd get some tomatoes from the grocery store and cut them up and immediately say, ah, I see that the hothouse tomatoes are here. And always kind of had a derisive feeling about what he perceived as greenhouse grown tomatoes. But from what it sounds like with what you've covered today, that there are so many new ways to approach greenhouse growing that we have different varieties that we can produce within protected culture and not have some of those quality issues that were perceived for many years. Yeah, that's a really good point. In fact, yeah, I know a lot of people have a negative opinion of greenhouse tomatoes, just like a lot of people have a negative opinion of winter-grown field tomatoes. And I would say that that is a symptom of the industrial food system of greenhouses that are really just trying to yield as much as possible. You know, as most growers know, there are ways to push production that oftentimes hurt flavor. And so I think that that's that's something that people can use to set their produce apart, including their greenhouse or hoop house grown produce. I, I definitely spend time in the book on flavor, especially on tomatoes, mainly because people get passionate about tomato flavor the way they don't about the cucumber flavor. And honestly, um, I should explain one of the things that I did in the research department at Johnny's. My main job was running trials, which is fantastic because I think every gardener and farmer has an urge deep down, or maybe not so deep down for some people, to plant one of everything in the seed catalog. You know, you're there in the wintertime and you're looking at all the varieties and uh, thinking, I'll have one of those and one of those and one of those and one of everything else. And that was basically my job. That's what I that's what I got to do. Because what we did is we had a trial farm and we would try all the new varieties that we thought that the let's say the typical Johnny's customer we thought would be interested in. So we would grow them all side by side there in Maine and also sometimes off site trials and do evaluations on them. So that the bulk of my time was actually taken up with finding new varieties and, and evaluating them. And so that, if you've ever wondered, that's how we get new varieties in the catalog, is it that we would we would run evaluations on them and decide, particularly if there was a new variety that we thought was better than an older variety, that's when we would re- replace them. So really, for people who, whether they're, they're just doing this for their own consumption or, or at market, one of the ways for people to set their farm apart is to say whatever's different about their farm 
to their customers, you know? Is it that you have the tastiest tomato? Is it it's the most local? You know, you're, you're the closest to the farmer's market. Is it that you grow, um, you know, with or without something? And so I think that flavor is really an opportunity for smaller growers because you don't need to use the same varieties that are the highest producing, or at least the, the greenhouses that are just focused on production are using. You know, you can really grow any variety that you want in there, and that's why... I spend quite a bit of time in the book on grafting because some of my favorite varieties to grow are heirlooms. I would usually grow a hoop house of about 50-50, about half sort of like what I call Dutch red beef steaks, which are red red greenhouse tomatoes that have been bred to, to survive greenhouse diseases, and then 50% heirlooms. And the way that I got the most out of my heirlooms was by grafting them because the grafting increased their vigor. It basically put a better root system on the plant, and it, it helped them avoid any diseases because if, if you've grown heirlooms, you know that they, for the most part, do not have any soil-borne disease resistance. And so, so grafting is a great strategy. I know growers who have gotten soil-borne diseases that prevented them from growing their, let's say, their favorite heirloom variety, but by grafting it onto a disease-resistant rootstock, they're back in business because it, the rootstock prevents the disease from coming up into the top of the plant, and they can have their same old German Johnson or Brandywine or whatever their favorite is um, that they always grew in infected soil just, just by grafting. So particularly for smaller farmers, flavor is really important. In fact, I talk about ways that you can improve flavor. You know, one of the most important being trying some varieties and, and finding out which, which varieties that you that you like the best, but things like, uh, you know, not overwatering the plants. I mean, that, that's a really classic way. You, you can get higher yield the more water that you put to the plants, especially when you really get into the what I would consider overwatering. You're going to get more yield because what is the plant doing? You know, it's, it's pumping the water up from the roots into the tomatoes. So you can, you can get a higher yield by compromising flavor by overwatering. And consequently, you can do things like watering very carefully to improve the flavor. So, you know, flavor, you know, I feel like if people have a negative impression of greenhouse tomatoes, it's, it's really has more to do with where those tomatoes were coming from. It's not, you know, growing them in a greenhouse. That's why I talk about the ways that they can improve the flavor in, in their own production. I really like everywhere that you've taken us today, Andrew, because it gives a nice broad overview of what someone can accomplish with protected culture as well as ways that we can think about and adapt to the different climates that we might find ourselves in, whether we're more northerly and w might want something that has some heat to it, like a greenhouse, or just to have an unheated hoop house to use for shade where it's really hot, or to allow for four-season production in temperate areas. Plus, you know, help those of us who love tomatoes to get a better tomato out of that process. With everywhere you've taken us today, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? Yeah, I would say that, you know, one of the reasons that I got so into greenhouses and have found this, besides moving from a warmer area to a colder area, is that I'm just a big plant nerd. You know, the reason that I like greenhouse and hoop house growing is because it's all about management. It requires you to understand what the plant wants and then giving it to them. And I want to contrast that for a second. Let's contrast that with, um, let's say, you were a smaller grower and you, you wanted to get into, you know, you wanted to grow uh, dent corn or something like that. If you looked at the practices that, that made large commercial-scale dent corn farmers successful, they're not very applicable to you. You know, you would see laser-level fields, enormous fields that allow you to have an enormous tractor and a big economy of scale, you would see a tractor that can be driven by GPS. You would probably see the bulk of the corn being genetically modified so you can spray herbicides over the top. You know, basically, you would see a production model that does not translate to most smaller or natural organic growers. That's contrasted with greenhouse growing, which greenhouse growing is, is really more about understanding the plant. It doesn't have to do as much with, with chemicals, chemicals and machinery, etc. It really requires you understanding the plant and that that's what i like you know i really geeked out on just the aspect of all the trying to understand the plants that you know that's why i have some basic plant physiology in there you know i talk about the three transpiration respiration and photosynthesis and it's it's something that most people know what they mean but you know i, I kind of go back to basics on that because really what you're doing with most greenhouse or hoop house growing is understanding how either light temperature humidity and, and some other factors 
influence the rate at which your plant is transpiring, uh, respiring, or photosynthesizing. So that's what I like about that. Even the biggest greenhouses that you can ever imagine, most big greenhouse growers, or small for that matter, their highest expense is labor because it's it's still something that people are having to do by hand. You have to understand what the plant wants and, and go out there and, and do it. And even, even conventional greenhouses are going more and more away from chemicals and more and more towards basically good plant husbandry and biological control of pests and diseases. And, and part of that has to do with the pests. Some of the most common pests in greenhouses are things like thrips and whiteflies that are very small insects that have very short life cycles. So what happens is even if you want to spray, even if you love chemicals, if you spray those pests, a few of them survive and then they go on to breed. You basically breed your own pesticide-resistant strains of these critters if you're spraying in a greenhouse, which, you know, I do not talk about spraying or any of that kind of stuff because I, I, you know, I'm an organic grower and so... I'm focusing mostly on, on just ways to manage the greenhouse for better health anyway, but that's one of the things that I like, that even in the biggest greenhouses in the industry, the trend is towards, even if they're not certified organic, is towards using good management and using biological controls as far as, as beneficial insect control, the, the bad insect. That's what I like about greenhouse growing, is that if you want to understand your plants and what's going on, it gives you the opportunity to figure them out and understand what makes them happy, and try to provide that through both conditions, but also what I call plant husbandry or plant management, you know, good pruning, trellising, and and other plant practices where you you get to be involved with the plants, you know, get your hands on and and prune them and trellis them and and take care of them and things like that. So, you know, that's my final thought. If, If you're a plant geek like me, and I think there's a lot here, I bet my book will it'll explain a few things that maybe made you scratch your head about your plants and also let you know how to, to make them happier in the future. And because that was, that was certainly a huge part of my job is just particularly at Johnny's. It was, it was really fun because I had, I had access to a lot of experts. And so I would just ask them a question and, and that question would lead to another question. And it, it just, it just allowed me to just learn more about these plants that I love. And also, so now I find myself really trying to promote. I, I am certainly a promoter for, for greenhouse and hoop house growing because because I do think that that's one of the ways for anyone, whether they be a, a small commercial grower or small, someone who's feeding themselves to, to uh, you know, compete with the, the industrial food system. Because something like 99% of the food that's consumed in this country is coming from, uh, you know, out of the industrial food system, which can, can just produce, produce food where in the best place produce it, to produce it at any given time of the year. And so regardless of size or commercial grower or not, um, you, you can tailor your own little, you know, some little part of your farm to be more conducive to growing tomatoes or any of these hot season crops or like we talked about, even even overwintering rosemary or other herbs and things like that where, where it wouldn't normally overwinter. So, you know, that that's my final thought is that I feel like this book and greenhouse growing in, in general is, is good for plant geeks out there because it, there's a lot of information to, to geek out on and I, I just found it endlessly interesting to just learn one thing after another and, and, you know, why increasing the sunlight does this and increasing the humidity that does that. And I, I just, I just found it engrossing. And that's, that's really where this came from. You know, I, I didn't set out, I didn't say, you know, I'd like to write a book. It, it really, it just started as an exploration process of, of, you know, why bigger growers were getting so much higher yields than I was. After turning over one rock or another, I realized there was a lot of stuff out there that I think that smaller growers would find beneficial and that turned into a book. Well, thank you, Andrew, for writing the Greenhouse and Hoop House Growers Handbook and for joining me today. Oh, sure. It's a pleasure, Scott. Thank you so much for having me on. And that was Andrew Mefford, author of the Greenhouse and Hoop House Growers Handbook. You can find out more about that book at ChelseaGreen.com. As Andrew is also the editor and publisher of Growing for Market magazine, you can find out more about that at GrowingForMarket.com. For Patreon supporters of the show, I'm giving away a copy of Andrew's book. Look for that at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast so that you can get yourself entered. Also, in cooperation with Andrew, we're giving away a subscription to Growing for Market, including access to the archives, a $79 value, to a Patreon supporter. You'll find that in a separate post at patreon.com if you're interested. For everyone who listens to the show, Andrew is also giving away a free issue of Growing for Market magazine. Find a link to that in the show notes. 
As I alluded to a little in the beginning of this episode, we as permaculture practitioners are modifying the world around us in order to meet human needs, working in such a way that also benefits Earth in addition to ourselves. And so while we're still developing the plants that are hardy year-round in the climate where we live so that we can have fresh harvests, or at least have something that we can forage and fill our larder with. I think that growing in protected spaces, whether that's a cold frame, a hoop house, or a full greenhouse, is something worth exploring, especially if we want to bring something to market that is financially viable. As Andrew mentioned, there's been an explosion in farmers' markets, but it does appear that we're reaching a saturation. I expect something similar to occur with community-supported agriculture over the next couple of years. So if as permaculture practitioners we want to farm full-time and be productive, we're going to need to find different ways to do that. And a greenhouse or a hoop house offers a way that we can. And it's something worth considering, especially with what Andrew lays out in his book. There's a space for those eight plants that he gives us. And I think about how with a hoop house in a temperate climate in particular, we could be growing herbs year-round or other items of culinary use and have a high financial value with a relatively small footprint. So if you're interested in something like this, I've included links to more information about the grants that are available for hoop houses, as well as to greenhouse providers, just so you can get an idea of what you could expect if you'd like to learn more about buying a greenhouse or building your own from something small that you might be able to get at a big box store, and all kinds of other things in between. We don't need to necessarily go out and buy something, but it's worth investigating what is available to know what's possible. If you're already growing in this way, if you're a farmer, a market gardener, or a producer, I'd love to hear from you. What have your experiences been like? What do you find is most productive where you are? What are the markets like? And how have they changed? Or what would you like to see grown in a greenhouse or experimented with? Are there any particular varieties of plants that you find work really well in that protected environment? I'd love to hear from you. Give me a call, 717-827-6266. Send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Or you can drop something in the post, The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next conversation out on April 27th for Patreon supporters and everyone else on April 30th, is a conversation with Patricia Daly on her book, The Ketogenic Kitchen. Until the next time, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.